We are continuing in the book of Genesis today. Uh, we'll be in chapter 17. Uh, the title of today's sermon is Circumcision. <laughs> because here's the thing, when you're in seminary, they teach you this thing. Uh, it's a mnemonic device uh, for planning messages, and it's hook, book, look, took. Okay? So that's a hook is like you have to have something to get everybody's attention. Book is then you're like you should look at the Bible and then look, look at the examine deeper in the scripture you just read and then took like what are your takeaways, right? I, I thought if I just titled the sermon circumcision, then I have to worry about a hook because <laughs> right there it's like, okay, well, okay, like nobody hears that word and just goes, oh yeah, whatever. Like it's like, Whoa, okay, what's happening? Let's Right, it's, it's, a, it's a shocking word, uh, and this is really where it's introduced in Scripture. This is, remember, we're starting from the beginning, so this is where it, it, it begins. It, it had already existed in other cultures at the time. Biblical scholars seed uh, that, that this isn't something that was invented in this moment, uh, but it's purpose in this moment. There's actual purpose to it, reason for it, and we'll get into that. But we're in chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, to start with. And this is 13 years from last chapter. So if you remember last week, we looked at uh, the incident with Hagar and the, uh, the birth of Ishmael. Uh, this is 13 years later. Uh, Abraham's 86 when uh, Ishmael's born, and now we're going to start out, it says he's 99. So 13 years later, starting in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. All right, so... Ishmael's now 13. He's a, he's a man in that culture, right? He is now a, a, a man. He's past that, that right. Um, and, and so now God's coming to Abram to reiterate this promise. Uh, and in doing so, he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Now, Abram uh, meant high father. So it was already a, an ironic nickname for a childless man, right, before he had Ishmael. He was childless, and his name meant high father. So that's already kind of uh, probably stung, right, when he introduced himself to someone, and they go, oh, you must have a lot of children. No, he had, he had none for most of his life. Um, now God's going to change it to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. So now it's not just high father, but father of a multitude. It, it, it expands the meaning of it even further. <clears throat> and in doing so, he tells that you become the father of many nations. And with, with the foresight that we see that, you know, we have this concept um, in the New Testament that Abraham is the father of all of those who believe and found righteousness by faith, 
right? Because we looked at a couple weeks ago where it says that Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. So he becomes the father of a multitude. Even We find out he's going to have a lot of descendants, but even more so in the New Testament, we find that they say he's the father of all of those nations that believe in him through faith. So it's even bigger than, than we can even imagine in this chapter. And then he, of course, again reiterates the promises that were already made to him in Genesis 12 and 15, chapter 12 and 15, these promises were already made, but that he would have many offspring, um, that he would give him the land, the promised land for an everlasting possession, uh, and that he will be their God forever, right? That Yahweh God would be their God forever. These promises are reiterated again. And it would seem like that's not necessary, but it seems to continue to happen. When God continues to come to him and reiterate these promises, assure him that these things will be, be the case. But if you, if you think about it, it's, it makes sense in that he doesn't have a lot of evidence that these things will be true. Right? He hasn't had the payoff that these things will be the case. And so God continues to come to him and says, this is happening, this will happen, this is going to happen. Continues to reiterate these promises to him. And one of the things is that he promises um, the promised land for an everlasting possession. He said this is going to be a this is a long-term promise, and it's a promise that has never been fulfilled. So it's important that we keep in mind that God's promises to Israel are everlasting, that he will establish his kingdom in Israel. This is what we mean when we talk about, in the book of Revelation, the millennial rule. The millennial rule that is the 1,000-year reign of Jesus on earth in Jerusalem over the promised land, that Israel will have the land that God promised them for a thousand years in the end. We can look at that in Revelation. He promises this in Revelation. We can see this. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their forehead or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. <clears throat> the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This is talking about an earthly reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem. That God has made these promises and will continue to expand on these promises throughout the Old Testament, saying that Israel will have this land. And again, they've never had it. Even at, at the height of, of King David or Solomon, at any point in that time, they never had it for the full distance that God had said it would be, for the full amount of land that he said it would be, and it will happen. So you see that even here, in Genesis, where in the beginning is connected to Revelation, the end of Scripture. The Bible tells one story over the course of these 66 books. God is working through history. It's not just in our moment, but we, there's a much bigger picture that we have to keep in mind. And this is part of it. This is why you, you know, you'll hear some Christians that are, get real excited about Israel and, and God's promises to Israel. This is why. They're still active. His promises still have not been fulfilled. They're still going to be fulfilled. They're important. All right, moving on to the next section here. 
the covenant of circumcision is implemented here in verses 9 through 16. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be the si- a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings and peop- of peoples shall come from her. Okay, so we institute circumcision as a sign. One question is, like, why that? Right? Why did he choose circumcision? I mean, it's certainly a big challenge for Abraham at 99 years old. Right? It's not something that's going to be easy for him. So it's certainly a, a big deal if he does it. Um, but the significance is really that it, it is really an, an external sign of an internal reality. An external sign of an internal reality, um, much like in, for us, baptism or taking the Lord's Supper, taking communion. Both of those are, are external things of something real that's happened inside. And we see this even in the Old Testament. The the New Testament certainly talks about this, but I think sometimes we miss the fact that even in the Old Testament, God talks about this. So in Deuteronomy, look at a couple of verses here, a couple of examples. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So even here, even by Deuteronomy, which is just a few books away, this is not that, much, not that much time has passed at that point. He's already talking about it symbolically and saying it's not just a matter of this physical circumcision, but a circumcision of your heart, a removal of the flesh from your soul, from your, your internal workings to where you live for him. Right? He's saying it's a symbolic. It's not about the actual physical act. It's about what's happening to you internally. Are you devoted? Is the covenant... Uh, active in your heart. He also talks about this in Jeremiah, another example, Jeremiah 4, verse 4, where he says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So again, here he's talking about changing their deeds, changing their actions, changing the way that they live where they live from, the heart, right? He's saying, that's what I care about. If you do a search, if you go into your, if you have a Bible software or something like that, and you look and you search circumcision or circumcise, you'll find more stuff talking about the heart than the flesh, right? This is mostly has to do with what does this mean for you? It's a sign of what has happened internally. And the same, same is true for something like baptism for us, right? I could go dunk people against their will, that's mostly what youth ministry is. I could go do that. Um, 
all the time, that's not going to mean anything, right? It's about their internal heart, right? It's, it's about what's changed inside of them. It's not about the fact that someone went under the water. Otherwise, we'd have a whole different plan, right? Mostly around tricking people into getting near pools so we can push them in, <laughs> right? Because then that would, be, that, would, that would work, right? No, it doesn't work. It's about them making the decision and saying, I want to be baptized as a symbol of what God has already done in me. It's not that it doesn't matter, it matters, right? Similarly, like marriage, right, and wearing a wedding ring and going through a marriage ceremony, again, that, those things don't make you married. The fact that you went through a ceremony, the fact that you wear a ring, doesn't make you married. It's about what the commitment that you've made inside. And then that ceremony is symbolic. But if, if like, you know, if you ever know, know a, a woman who met a man who goes like, oh, marriage is just an institution. We don't need that. We can just, we love each other and that's what matters. That guy's sketchy, <laughs> right? We know that. That's not okay. Because even though it's symbolic, this, it's symbolic of something real, right? And so for us, baptism is symbolic of something real and something that matters. Marriage is symbolic of something that matters. Circumcision for them was symbolic of something that mattered. It, it mattered that they did this. It was also a practical sign. It was a practical sign. In this day, um, we, you know, God is looking forward to, at some point, they're going to go into the promised land and, and worship and, and need to worship him and need to rely and fight and eventually expand the promised land, even though it's inhabited by Canaanites primarily. Well, Canaanite worship um, mostly centered around the Baal gods, B-A-A-L, Baal gods. And the way you worship these guys, they were all regional. They were all regional gods that was like, oh, this area has this Baal god, this area has this Baal god. It's like we had like the Baal god of Folsom, the Baal god of Placerville, the Baal god of South Lake Tahoe, right? If you had different regional ones um, all around, and those people would worship those, their own gods, um, and mostly these were gods that had to do with, in an agrarian culture, rain and fertility of the land and the animals, right? Fertility of the land and the animals. So mostly rain was a big problem. And in that region, rain is a big problem. It's not consistent. It's not reliable. And so they would worship these gods to try to make the rain come. And if they, are, if they weren't getting rain in their region, sometimes they'd go to the next region and, and, and worship that god to see if he might come over and rain on them. Right, it's like go around try to figure out which Baal God is really active right now and try to get the rain to come because if you don't have rain, your crops die and then you're, you're going to suffer. Right? It's actually a big problem in that, in that day. So God knew, hey, the Israelites are going to go there. They're going to want to do that. They're going to be tempted to do that. There's going to be no rain. They're going to be praying to me. They're going to be doing their sacrifices. Maybe it's not going to rain. And they're going to want to go talk to some of these other guys and say, who do you worship? How do you worship them? Here's, and here's how they worship them. They had temples up on the mountaintops because they wanted to get closer to the gods. And they would build these temples and then the way that they thought they could get the gods to reign is that they needed to excite them through sexual intercourse. And so they would have temple prostitutes that they would go up and essentially rape. These temple prostitutes. So that's what the Israelites would be tempted to do go and say, oh, here's how we worship, oh, this is how we worship, and so then they would go to the temple, the thought is, they would go to the temple, go to worship, and go, oh yeah, I have a covenant with God, 
right? Because sexual sin was common in this, in this right? It was even a form of worship, is what we're saying. And so the fact that that actual organ would be marked with the covenant would dissuade, would, would dissuade them from that. And this is true in many cultures. It's certainly true in our culture that sexual sin is a big problem. And so this would be a mark and a reminder to the Israelites that they have a covenant with God. Now, if we fast forward to the New Testament, there's an interesting New Testament question that comes up, which is this, I have a, on the screen, is do Gentile converts need to be circumcised? Right, this was a legitimate question that they wrestled with in, new, in the New Testament. And if you're going to r- understand any of Paul's letters and really a lot of Acts, a lot of, the, a lot of New Testament, you have to understand this controversy. The controversy is, do Gentile converts need to be circumcised? And it makes sense if you think about it, because Jesus was the, the Messiah to the Jews, right? He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture. The Israelites had, had this Messiah promised to them, and now he has said, oh, now I actually want you to go and tell this gospel to the Gentiles, to all the other nations, not just to the Jews. And so then they go, okay, well, they are going to become Christians, or they're going to become converts, they're going to follow our Messiah. Do they need to become Jews first? This is essentially the question. It's like, do they need to be, if they're going to become followers of our Messiah, they wouldn't use the term Christian, that wasn't invented yet. If they were going to become followers of our Messiah, do they need to become Jews before that? And this was a question that was active, and, and a primary means of that was being circumcised, was a big part of that. Obviously, it goes all the way back to Abraham. This was a big deal for them. So did this need to happen? Well, Paul argued, and again, this is a lot of, the, a lot of, of Paul's letters refer to this. this is, what I'm going to share with you is just a small por- portion, because a lot of it talked about that. Paul argued effectively that Gentile Christians did not need to be circumcised. He said, no, this is not part of it, because that has to do with the old covenant and the old law. So, he, so he, he says, yeah, so his arguments are essentially that it's a provision of the old covenant and, and that circumcision, circumcision was always more of a heart matter than a physical one. So we'll get a couple passages here. Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. He says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. So again, he's talking about this idea that it's about your heart. It's not about the physical sign. It's about the, it's about the heart matter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 18 through 19, he says, Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. I had no idea how that was meant to work. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Now, a question that we could have is, 
how is this, does this controversy manifest itself today? Because this obviously isn't an issue. No one's talking about this in, in our churches today. Um, but how does it manifest itself? Well, here's the key, here's the core of that issue, is any argument regarding outward appearance being necessary for righteousness, right? Any argument that argues, you know, that your outward appearance has to change in some way in order for you to be deemed righteous is, is tied directly into this, right? Because they're saying it, the outward appearance needs to change in order for you to be righteous, in order for you to be saved, in order for you to be a part of this. The same is true for us. So it has anything to do with dress, anything to do with, with how we dress, how you cut your hair, all these things that we might say, oh, this needs to change, or this is the right way to do that, is tied to this. Now, here's an interesting thing. Paul's got these two guys who are young leaders, young church leaders, Timothy and Titus. Right? They're kind of his primary protégés. He wrote letters to them. Well, he circumcised Timothy, but uh, not Titus. Right? So he, he circumcised Timothy and not Titus. As adults, after they came to Jesus. Now the question is, why did he do that? What did Timothy do to him that made him decide this? Well, Timothy, he chooses to circumcise for the sake of mission. Right? Timothy, he decides, the people we're going to talk to, it would be much easier for us to get in the door, to have any kind of conversation with them, if you do this. Titus, he does for the sake of theology. He says, like, this is not necessary, and I'm going to make a stand here, in front of these church leaders so that they know this isn't necessary. So Timothy, he does for the sake of mission. Titus, he doesn't for the sake of theology, for the sake of, of, of having that argument in that situation. So what does that mean for us? That means there are times when we might have discussions about how we appear outwardly for the sake of mission. That's a different story. Deciding like, hey, we're going to go to Indonesia. We need to dress in this certain way to be culturally appropriate, you know, those are the things that, that's an entirely different thing when we choose to to alter outward appearance for the sake of taking the gospel to the world. That's a different thing when we make that argument. Okay. Now, if we go to verse 14, if we go back back and now look at verse 14, he says this basically, cut, cut off or be cut off. Right, he says, cut off or be cut off. That's essentially, the, it's like a play on words that he's putting forth there. We're saying either be circumcised or be cut off from your people, is what he's, his instruction to Abraham. Be circumcised or be cut off from your people. Play on words, cut off or be cut off. Keep this covenant or be cut off in the same way that the people are ki- keeping this covenant or cutting off. And remember, this is specific to Israel and God's covenant with them. God's covenant with Israel is specific to them that they, he's asking them to do this, he wants them to do it, they need to do it, or be cut off from their people. <coughs> and a question that, uh, that, that jumps to mind, because you go, okay, they're being cut off, they're being, he's basically being expelled from, from their people if they don't follow this practice. Do we have any kind of practice like that where we expel people? Well, we do, but it's, in, it's specific and only for those inside the church. And here's how it works. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13, Paul writes this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, 
not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or of the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual, sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. So what Paul's saying here is that we're not to associate with people who continue in unrepentant, perpetual sin. But they're continuing to say, yes, I'm going to continue to sin, and I don't care that it's sin. And even if you call that person out and say, hey, you need to stop doing this. Right? If we had, this is the situations where this has happened in my experience. A man is sleeping with someone who isn't his wife. We come to that man and say, you need to stop doing this. You need to stop committing adultery. And they say, nope, too bad. And in fact, I want to bring my message to church with me. Not a joke. That's happened. And then we say, nope, you can't do that. And until you stop this, you can't come here. You can't be a part of this body. Because if we were to do that, we would not only be hurting him, we'd be hurting, him, we'd be hurting his wife, We'd be hurting the community by validating that sin. So those are the situations where this applies. But notice, he's very specific. Those inside the church, those that you call brothers, those that you call sisters, those that are in with you, that you know claim the name of Jesus, have walked in it, have been with you for years, those are the people that he says, those are the people you call out, those are the people that you judge, not those outside the church. Because those that aren't Christians... We should expect to sin, right? Anyone who doesn't, is not repented, hasn't, has not come to Jesus, has not come to Jesus for salvation, we would say they're dead in their sin. And we can't expect anything else from them. So it's frustrating to me when I see Christians look at the world and get very angry about the state of the world and the decline of the culture. Because apart from Jesus, we should expect that. We should expect nothing less apart from Jesus. For people that are walking away from Jesus, we should expect them to descend further and further into depravity, further and further into fallenness. That, that's the way of the world. That's the way of the enemy. We should expect that, and we should love those people and want to call them to repentance, call them to the gospel, give them the hope that they desperately need. But so often we judge them, we look down on them, we, we condemn those that need hope, those that need the gospel, those that need salvation. We really got to stop doing that. Last thing in this section, he changes, the, he changes Sarah's name, right? He changes her name from Sarai, which means my princess, to Sarah, which means mother of nations, right? Mother of nations. So he changes her name to mother of nations again, Kind of ironic, given that she still hasn't had any children. And God promises that Sarah will be the one through whom Abraham will have a son who would be the, the heir. God's original plan, this means that God's original plan has not been altered by Abraham's relationship with Hagar and her offspring. So this means that Hagar and Ishmael, God has a plan for them, God has already promised good to them, he cares about them, wants them, but his original plan has not been altered by this. All right, last section here, verses 17 through 27. He laughs. 
Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. As God had said to him, Abraham was ninety years old when he was circumcised in the foreskin of his flesh, and Ishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of this house, those born in the house, and those brought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Okay. So first thing, God makes this promise, and Abraham literally falls down laughing, right? And God ends up telling him, you're going to name your son Isaac, which Isaac literally means he laughs. That's Isaac's name, is he laughs. Um, and, and I think this, this points to the fact that, I, you know, Abraham's not doing it mockingly. He's doing it in this amazement that he's it's like God's plan is so incredible, so unbelievable that he just can't help himself. He, he's, it's a, a hilarious. He laughs about it. And, and sometimes God's plans and actions are so unbelievable that laughter is a part of our response. I've, I've seen people do it. I've done it where I just can't believe that that's what it is. It's not a mocking thing. It's simply out of the, the incredibility of it, right? How incredible God's ways are and how unbelievably God works in spite of what we think is possible. We also see Abraham wants to offer Ishmael as an alternative, right? He's like, oh, well, what about Ishmael? Let's, we've already got him. He's already made it. He's 13. Like, let's let him be the one. Right? And God's like, no, that's not what I want. He, he's hoping, I think a couple things. I think he's hoping that God will redeem his mistake, or that God will choose to say, like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Um, I think that Abraham wants, he loves Ishmael, and he wants good for him, right? He's his son. And God does promise that he'll bless Ishmael, and he, ha- he has good plans for him, but he's not going to be the heir to the covenant. Because God already had a plan for that, and, and Abraham's not going to change that. The last thing that I want to point us to in here is that Abraham circumcises every man in his house. Um, and we know from chapter 14, verse 14, that that's, that's 318 men. That's 318 men of fighting age, so plus the, the younger ones, plus the kids. It's at least 318 men. This is from 14 when he goes in pursuit uh, of Lot, who's been taken with with, uh, the Sodomites. When Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He convinces 318 grown men to be circumcised. This shows us that Abraham was a great leader. It does. I mean, I know that sounds like a joke, but it's serious. I, 
as someone who tries to be a leader, I can't believe that. Like, I could not do that. I could not convince that, that many people to do that. That's incredible. It shows us what, Abra- what a great leader Abraham was. All right, let's end with this. How should we then live? I got, four th- I got three things here for you. First, recognize the everlasting nature of God's promises, both to Israel and to us. Here's the, I think, an important thing to keep in mind that, that we didn't mention earlier, is that he promises us a kingdom as well, an eternal kingdom. He's got the, the we'll have the millennial rule, Israel will have its earthly kingdom, but greater than that is this eternal kingdom that we have coming. He talks about this in Matthew chapter 25. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Right? He's, he's going to restore his creation's intent. The kingdom of God will be active on in new heavens and a new earth. We have that promise coming. He's got a promise for us as well. God's got big plans for history. Secondly, ask God for a circumcision of heart. Right? Ask God to remove those things that, that block us from him, that get in the way, that those desires that are apart from his desires, that are the things we want that are outside of his will. Ask him to remove those things. Cut them away, get rid of them. And then thirdly, believe in God's incredible plan for history and your own life. Believe that God has an incredible plan for history and also for your own life, that he wants to work in and use you. And I'll end with this, uh, this story. This is just something that just happened to me yesterday. Yesterday I took uh, my son Judah to um, Granite Arch. He loves climbing, and so I've been taking him down there, and he, he's really good at it, and he likes to climb. And it was really busy yesterday, and there were like a couple birthday parties, and there was this group of uh, kids running around, and, and uh, adults, and they all had matching shirts, dark green shirts. Um, they said Trail Life USA on the back. And I was just interested what this group is, and so I saw a mom that was standing there watching her son, and she had the, you know, the green shirt, I think, and she was holding a book that said Trail Life USA, and I said, excuse me, what is Trail Life USA? And she said, oh, it's a, uh, it's, it's like a Christian scouting organization. Like, it's like Christian Boy Scouts. And then she proceeded to say, and it's, like, it's a really about like health and like being active and being outside. She like immediately downplayed. I realized as I was talking to her, like, oh, she's like downplaying the Christian part. She doesn't want me to like get caught up in that because she wants me to have like a chance. Like she focuses on the, the health and the activity parts of it. Then I'll be more interested. And I thought like, wow, and I didn't re- reveal myself to her. I didn't say, oh, I'm a pastor or anything like that. Uh, I, and I, you know, I just was interested in what it was. Um, but I thought it was fascinating because I've been guilty of that, 100%, of, of this idea of trying to go like, well, here are the, here are the non-Christian-y parts of the thing. Here's the good things about it that are just normal uh, people things. And, and so, like, don't worry about the Christian stuff. I want to surprise you with that later. <laughs> right? We do that so much. 
We do that so much. But I was thinking, like, first of all, she doesn't know that I would be way more excited about the Christian part of it than, than the, 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 like, scouting part of it. Like, that's, you know, obviously I'm a pastor. That's cool to me. But secondly, like, what a missed opportunity that to play up the gospel. Like, we, we get ashamed of the gospel or we think that it's not powerful enough. We think that God is not powerful enough to work in these ways. That in any conversation, we can't have the opportunity to share the gospel. That we take the most important thing in the world to us, the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, rose again on our behalf, that we have life in him, that we have the opportunity for eternal life, that we'll go and be with him in the new heavens and the new earth when he returns, that it gives us hope, it changes our life. Like All of us would say, this is the most important thing in our lives, and, and we hide it. Or we don't think that it's as powerful as it is. Right? We recognize its power in our own life, but we're afraid that we might be embarrassed if we share it with somebody else. We, we, we're like, I think we're kind of like Abraham, where we want to go like, well, well, what about Ishmael? Right? We want to we try to outmaneuver, outstrategize God. We're like, I'll find a way to, to make this really attractive. When God, God's got it. Right? He, he, he has this great plan. He's offered the greatest gift that we can ever have. Life in his son. Like the forgiveness of sins. The gospel. Right? And, and we got to offer that to people. We got we to recognize the power of the gospel, the power of God's plans, the ways that God can work that will blow our minds. Right? That, that will cause us to fall down laughing. We got to believe in those things. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that we um, can come together and worship you and, and um, hear from your word. God, we pray that your word would change us, that we might um, be changed and challenged by it. God, that you would um, circumcise our hearts. God, that we would be changed. You would cut away anything that's not necessary, not of you. God, that we would pursue you with all that we are. That you would cause a revival in us a revival in, in this church, in this county. God, we pray for that. We want the power of your gospel to go forth um, from, from our church, from us individually. God, I pray that that would happen. That you would give each person here an opportunity this week to share the gospel, where they would know that they have that opportunity, whether they take it or not, God, that you would give that opportunity, give that open door to every person here this week. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus.